0: They felt like that that should be, uh, that they wanted FSIS to relook that. And the response to uh, CSPI was that, yes, we're going to look at it and probably going to classify any ingredient that is a source, be it synthetic or natural, we're going to classify that as a curing agent.
1: Welcome to MeatsPad, a platform dedicated to sharing breakthrough knowledge that is accessible to the meats industry. On each episode, we will hear from meat specialists and professionals to talk about numerous topics in meat science. This podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Meat Export Federation, the National Provisioner, Ultrasource, the new standard for innovation, IFA, Meat Processing Power. Fiscale Fan is a global leader and innovative partner in the food industry who provides solutions for the casing market. Hello, meat folks! Welcome back to the Meatspad Podcast. Uh, it's Phil Bass, and once again, I'm flying solo as Francisco's out there making the world a better place for us meat enthusiasts. Um, today we have a we have a guest uh, um, from Texas A&M University, Dr. Wes Osborne and uh, we're gonna get into a topic that I would say is is very relevant for the time right now, but uh, real quick, Dr. West, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Phil, I appreciate you having me on.
1: Absolutely. So, um, so, so the topic is, and I'm going to confess to the world right now, as I, as I just did to Dr. Osborne, but I missed this, his webinar through the American Meat Science Association that's talking about an alternative curing method. And so selfishly, I decided, you know what, let's let's have him on the podcast so that he can recap and, and say everything he said once again. Um, but... Uh, Curing meats, and, and let's, let's remind the audience, because it's not a, a fully academic audience, let's remind the audience, uh, Dr. Osborne, if you would, remind us what, what the curing of meats is and, and what is necessary for meats to be considered cured. Okay.
0: Yeah, well, sure, uh, Phil. Well, basically, you know, when we talk about uh, meat curing, it's just a method that we use uh, to basically enhance the, the preservation, uh, if you will, of meat products. And I will say currently what we do is that that tends to be uh, a process where we're going to use an ingredient uh, called sodium nitrite usually attached to a salt carrier. And you might know this as uh, as prate powder or the pink curing salt uh, that we put into these meat products. And then uh, w- when we do put it in uh, to a variety of different types of products, you know, it actually goes through a process where that nitrite goes through the system and it's converted Uh, into a molecule called nitric oxide. And then this nitric oxide, uh, it's a gas. And so it doesn't last very long. I mean, it evolves off very, very quickly. But if you generate this nitric oxide gas, it will complex with the myoglobin or the uh, color pigment of fresh meat. And then once we go through a heating process or thermal processing, if you will, in a smokehouse as an example, uh, it will form a pigment that's called nitrosyl hemochrome and that will uh, result in that cured pink color. And not only do you have that, you also get a cured meat flavor slash aroma. And it also uh, aids with the shelf life of the product, and also can help us with respect to uh, serving as an antimicrobial uh, because it's been shown to uh, definitely reduce the growth of uh, Clostridium botulinum, Clostridium perfringens, you know those types of pathogens that. Uh, that the general, you know, public uh, uh, may not necessarily be concerned about day to day, but definitely would be if you consume product that, for some reason, uh, had those pathogens in it. It's it, it's not a very good uh, illness to get. So so briefly, that's basically what we do with respect to uh, to curing meat.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and and for all of our uh, s- s- our processors out there, um, and and that's an excellent recap. Um, you know, so many good reasons to cure meat using our our very well known and tested sodium nitrate, sodium nitrite. These these products that are available um, uh, quite available um, commercially and can be incorporated into a variety of different products um, to help with that curing, especially with the pink. Pink coloring that, that you say the, the 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 unique coloring that is associated with cured meats, um, uh, the shelf life, and then of course the uh, control of the clostridia uh, bacteria that can that can lead to some pretty devastating diseases, and so um, a lot of good reasons why we cure meats. And and I'm you know we could probably spend hours talking about the history of it and how we kind of stumbled upon it possibly in the, in the past, but it's been a part of us as, uh, as humans consuming meat for a very long time. Um, and, and what I'd like to now get into is maybe some of this new technology that, that, that your team has been investigating to maybe look at different ways of still achieving that cured, um, product, but not necessarily using the sodium nitrate, sodium nitrite. Is that correct? Mm-hmm.
0: No, uh, absolutely. Phil, um, uh, basically, um, uh... This, this really came from uh, from medical uh, research, uh, if you will. Uh, I think it was in, I want to say 2012, uh, at a International Congress of Meat Science and Technology meeting, and a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Nathan Bryan, who's with uh, Bader College of Medicine, he, he, his, his research has been into uh, uh, basically the nitric oxide molecule, and he gave a presentation, uh, I think it was in, I think it was in Montreal, if I'm not mistaken. So um, he's standing up there giving this presentation on the benefits of nitric oxide as it relates to um, you know, improving uh, blood flow, oxygen flow, uh, how it can help uh, you know, with people who have uh, heart conditions, things like this. And I started looking at it and he started talking about this, uh, this enzyme that we have in our system that, that you know, any type of animal has in their system. he started calling this the nitric oxide synthase system. And basically there's three forms. There's a a neuronal, uh, an inducible, and then he was mainly talking about the endothelial nitric oxide synthase system, which is related to skeletal muscle. And I don't forget listening to that because he said this system works by using the amino acid L-arginine as a substrate that the nitric oxide synthase system will take and through its process, generates nitric oxide for the body. Okay, so being the kind of guy I am, I'm pretty simple. I said, wait a minute, if it does it and it produces nitric oxide, that kind of looks like a potential curing system. Okay, so fast forward a few years later, you know, always thinking about it, and all, but uh, what we decided to do, I want to say it was in uh, 2018, we decided to give this a shot and see if it wouldn't work. And uh, from that, we basically wanted to do it in uh, at least investigate whether or not this is a possibility by using uh, pre rigger muscle, you know, thinking that, okay, if we harvested muscle, say within 90 minutes of the time that it was, uh, that it was stunned or harvested, then that enzyme system, if it exists, would still be fairly viable. And then we could add some arginine to it and see, okay, what do we get? Do we get uh, not only nitric oxide and we get some type of a cured pigment color. uh, Also, we wanted to take a look at residual nitrite because in this system, L-arginine all the way through the system produces nitric oxide and also another amino acid, L-citrulline. And so what we want to do is that if you produce nitric oxide and it doesn't get complex with the myoglobin, two nitric oxide molecules can combine to form nitrite. And what we would call it would be residual nitrite, just like we have in a conventional curing system if we directly added sodium nitrite you know, to a meat product. So we went through this process and I worked with uh, Dr. Yao Wu, who is pretty much a, a international leader in the use of L-arginine, primarily, if you will, for live animals. And he's, he's been a proponent of L-Arginine being a really, really special um, amino acid. So when I talked to him about doing this, he gave us a range of, uh, of concentrations that we might wanna use to try to get this system to work. And so we did, and we expanded it a little bit because we just, we just wanted to make sure. And so we did this and what we found, uh, now this is all in a, in a research lab, if you will, uh, harvested uh, pork carcasses. Uh, actually pulled uh, semimembranosus or inside ham muscle uh, samples out, put it into a solution that contained varying concentrations of L-arginine, and, uh, and went through either we kept it in a raw or uncooked state, or we went on and cooked it, okay, to say about 158 degrees Fahrenheit or what we might consider to be uh, fully cooked. And then we did some analysis where we took a look at residual nitrite values, And then we also want to take a look at a cured pigment, uh, if you will, to see if we got any type of of nitric oxide uh, uh, heme uh, formation. And sure enough, we found it, okay? It wasn't in much levels, but but we found it and it happened. And so that's great because we know that it's functional. The downside, it's in pre-rigger meat, okay? (laughs) There's not a lot of pre-rigger meat that's used in the meat industry. (laughs) You know, right now, unless you're making whole hog sausage and that's a great product and everything. So we decided, okay, we need to determine now, does it work in post-rigger meat? So we actually replicated that study again, got more pork carcasses. And this time we sampled on one side of the carcass from the semi muscle, pre-rigger. And then 18 hours later from the other muscle, we did the post rigor, And so we went through the exact same process. And what we found, was that, yes, in post rigor meat, it worked. Okay, so now we we, we may be on to something. Well, the next step in the process was we got with our uh, our technology people uh, over in the College of AgriLife and said, hey, is this something that could be patentable? So, so they said, oh yeah, well, let's take a look at it. So basically we filed a provisional patent and then through another year worth of research and everything, we wound up getting a patent that was published in, um, I want to say, June of 2021. So that's kind of where it started, but we also had some other concerns that is very analogous to perhaps what we had in the day of the vegetable juice powder, you know, when it first came out as an alternative cure. And uh, I don't know if you want me to address that point or not, but that was yeah, an
1: issue. I if you don't mind, because you're you're hitting on some really cool topics. And I've been I've been uh, emphatically taking notes over here on this other side. And that's one of the topics that we really probably need to broach, um, especially with with our, our processor listeners out there who may be curing items. And there's the whole question of cured versus uncured, but still it's still the same, it's still the same result. And so, yeah, yeah if you don't mind exactly. talking about it,
0: yeah. No, no, I don't, no, you're, you're, you're exactly right, Phil. And, and one thing uh, uh, that you may or, or, or your audience uh, may not be aware of is that I think in 2018, the Centers for Science and the Public Interest petitioned USDA FSIS with a letter that said, hey, addressing that same topic you just talked about, how you know these uncured products are really cured and labeling them uncured, and then with that qualifying statement, you know, no added nitrates or nitrites, except that uh, naturally occurring, they felt like that that should be, uh, that they wanted FSIS to relook that. And the response to uh, CSPI was that, yes, we're going to look at it and probably going to classify any ingredient that is a source, be it synthetic, or natural, we're going to classify that as a curing agent. Therefore, it's going to effectively eliminate that category of uncured products. Now, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think FSIS has rendered a final decision yet. I think it's still, you know, under rulemaking or, or, or whatever the process is. So that's where we're at. But before that, we were actually saying, hey, can, can we do something you know, to make natural products and not putting synthetic nitrite into meat? And uh, I know there are several, but the one I, I will mention is that uh, uh, Florida Food Products uh, came up with technology, if you will, to take uh, uh, celery, if you will, and go through their processes to, uh, uh, to concentrate uh, into a celery powder. And it was primarily nitrate and then what we did, we'd have to take a seller, excuse me, a starter culture uh, with bacteria that would basically reduce the nitrate to nitrite, okay? So during that time, though, the you know what the hard part was, was that, well, amount of ingoing nitrite is regulated by FSIS. You know, if I'm using synthetic uh, nitrite, it's 120 parts per million, you know, for bacon, 156 parts per million for sausage, 200 for hams, and you know, based on you know your raw weight and the amount that you put in, you can calculate the parts per million. Yeah, very precise and difficult. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a little yeah. bit, it's a little bit harder to do when you have to rely on your fermentation process <laughs> to convert to get there. Okay, so the technology has changed now, where you have pre-converted celery powder, which is much more accurate with respect to how much parts per million is going in. Right. But the reason I bring this up is because I think this technology is basically like the technology of the celery powder when we had to use the starter culture. Because I can't tell you, right, how much arginine did you need to put in to get, okay, similar results as conventionally cured products. Okay. So that was our dilemma, all right? Yeah. So the only thing I could think of to uh, try to equilibrate, if you will, is to try to establish some type of a baseline. So what we did, we took uh, samples of beef, pork, and poultry, okay? We would treat these samples with 120, 156, or 200 parts per million of nitrite. We also did it with our five levels of L-arginine, and we cooked all of these products to like, I wanna say 132, you know, sort of being like you would for bacon, though I think most times it's 128. But we took 132, 158 because that's considered fully cooked instantaneous on Appendix A, yeah. and then 165 because that's what we tend to cook to for any kind of poultry-based product. Right. So it's a pretty large study, and so we did that for every single, uh, you know, sample. So I had a, you know, if you want to say controls with 120, 156, and 200, and then our five. Uh, concentrations across species and across final endpoint uh, temperature times. The goal was, can we use residual nitrite as a baseline to try to determine how much arginine, okay. Oh, well, let's put it this way. Which arginine concentration, okay, is comparable to a particular regulated concentration of Mm nitrite. And if we could, Now we're getting to where we might be able to tell meat processors, okay, if you put this much in, you should get something along these lines. Because that's the only thing we could think of. And there may be something else. If somebody in the audience has a better way, I'm all ears. Because right now, right now, that's what we've got. So basically what we did, we went through that process. And and we can say that now uh, we've got about, I think, uh, four concentrations that, that we think were comparable for beef. Three concentrations that were comparable for the pork, and only two for the poultry, uh, if you will. In other words, those concentrations were similar with respect to generated residual nitrite values of those same species at the 120, the 156, or 200 parts per million of the synthetic nitrite. So, but basically, it was it was uh, prey powder or curing salt that we used. So, yeah, that, 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 that's that's where we're, where we're at, at least to this point of the story. Go ahead. Since
1: 1883, Ultrasource has been a trusted supplier to the food industry. Ultrasource provides superior kill floor, processing, packaging, and labeling equipment and operational supplies. Well, in... <clears throat> So, so first off, for those of you out there who are not research scientists, thats that sounds like a, an, an enormous uh, project that you just undertook. <laughs>
0: yeah, but remember, <laughs> But let me say this. This is all research lab-based yeah. making what I consider test tube type sausages. Okay,
1: okay? gotcha, test
0: gotcha. Type We're not talking making products and everything else, yeah. but it was still big because that's a lot of samples to try to analyze and try to figure out what's going on
1: absolutely absolutely well and and so so to talk a little bit about the the uh, l-arginine um in in the muscle and and to remind the <clears throat> the listeners out there that this is an amino acid amino acids are the building blocks of our proteins in our bodies in the bodies of these animals that we're harvesting um is is the l-arginine um is there is there native concentrations in the in the muscle of these species to begin with um that okay yes okay uh,
0: absolutely i mean i mean i mean meat is a source of arginine okay okay? and we can get arginine for the human body through consumption of meat what i'm doing is adding levels above physiological levels because if you think about it you know, if you're if talking about in, in living tissue, it doesn't take much arginine to activate this, this system to get it to, uh, to work. But, but in pulse rigor where, you know, we're talking uh, colder temperatures, it's not at the optimal temperature for that enzyme to work. We obviously have to add more. If we're going to get to the levels that we need uh, with respect to nitric oxide uh, generation, residual nitrite formation, and say that it is comparable to, um, to the conventionally cured meat products. you right, you're, you're absolutely right. But, but that's something that we found in the transition between the pre rigor and the post rigor meat. And then when we tried to make some test products, I couldn't get products to work, okay? At the levels we do, I, I couldn't do it. And then, so what we realized was that when we were making our test samples, we had it in a, in a solution So basically that arginine was always available, you know, going through this process. Well, we're not necessarily doing that if I'm making a a, a summer sausage, a smoked sausage, you know, what have you. So what we did, we actually increased the concentration of arginine that was going into these products. And then finally, by trial and error, we were able to determine that, okay, yes, we can put this much in and get this response okay so but 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 i'll tell you you know we, we didn't solve the problem yet and, and, and you know I'll, I'll let you think about that and everything else before you ask another question but but that's kind of where uh where we are you know arginine is there in meat you know and when if we eat meat that we're getting uh if you will most of our uh requirement for arginine so it is a <laughs> yeah, you know, like you said, it's naturally occurring, right? I mean, it's an amino acid that's in meat, and all we're doing is taking this same amino acid, if you will, and just taking trying to activate an already existing skeletal muscle enzyme, okay, to generate nitric oxide. So in effect, there is no nitride anywhere in this process, but it still generates, okay, the same molecule that we want to see when we add. So do not try it directly into a product. Oh
1: my gosh. I, <laughs> the, I I I'm over the moon excited about this. This is this is just so cool considering. I mean, if if we can figure out, and I and I say we as in the royal we, right, of right, course, right, but, right. but if we can figure out a way to administer this to, to products using technologies that are already available in the processors uh, facilities, um, the the labeling of of something like this um, mm-hmm. may become so desirable to the consumer cuz um, cuz essentially i mean it's just we're adding it, i'm going to i'm going to overgeneralize but we're adding protein back in and so exactly. we're taking a building block of protein just putting it in there there's nothing really synthetic about it there's there's it, and and again to remind our listeners Sodium nitrate, sodium nitrite, these are inorganic mineral type compounds that, that that are are very precisely manufactured, but that's the problem. It's it's this manufactured item that's being incorporated into the meat. And 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 if we can just take and add a little bit of arginine, which is something I assume you could probably bottle buy a bottle of arginine off of a, a, a health store shelf, possibly. I don't know. Yeah,
0: uh, Yes. I mean, they sell it as supplements, right? I mean, sure. I mean, you can find arginine anywhere. As a matter of fact, I get the arginine that we use. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a certain type of arginine. It's L-Arginine HCL. Right. And so it's, uh, I can get it offline off of uh, Amazon.
1: Yeah.
0: You know? And I mean, so it's not anything that's uh, I don't want to say this. Well, we did have a little problem getting our last batch because of supply chain right. know, issues and everything. So I'm not going to say it's real easy to get. All I can say is that uh, uh, you're right. It's something that we can't get. Now, now the L-arginine, now, now whether it's natural or not, I mean, it goes through a fermentation process to create you know, this amino acid. So that would be another discussion to determine if that individual ingredient, quote unquote, Meets the definition if you wanted to put it in a natural organic uh, product. But I will say this, the bottom line is, is that uh, if you don't want sodium nitride added to it, well, guess what? We are not putting sodium nitride into this product. That's
1: right. Yep. Just usually using what's, what's naturally there. Absolutely exactly. fascinating. Well, exactly. and I'm looking at my list of questions here and you've, you've, sure. you've answered quite a few of them. Uh, can this work in other species? Obviously you've mentioned the, all of the other species you've talked about. Yeah, it, yeah
0: it, it can, but, but, you know, full transparency and everything else, you know, we still got some, uh, uh, so we, we were very, very fortunate that, uh, all the research that we had done that supported the patent, uh an additional project uh, that was done, uh, actually by undergraduate uh, researcher, of mine who wanted to do uh, uh, an undergraduate thesis project. We said, okay, we did all these things in the lab. Let's take what we learned and let's actually make a product. So that student took the uh, what we knew and made some B. frankfurters, and we made you know beef frankfurters and um, you know evaluated it and everything else. And uh, now it was kind of sort of still in the COVID a little bit, but kind of coming out of it and everything. So we weren't able to do some analysis that we normally would do, like our sensory, our sensory facilities hadn't quite, you know, got back up. And uh, uh, when they started, obviously they had a backlog. And so we really couldn't do any, any century type of things. Uh, but just looking at uh, color and looking at shelf life, you know, were two things. because We basically did a 56 day refrigerated shelf life study. Uh, and we did compare it to uh, the control was 156 parts per million. Okay, just standard what, what you would have uh, in a, a uh, conventionally cured frankfurter. And we did that, and uh, very comparable on a lot of things. But challenge, okay, the internal color, you know, you did get it, isn't as intense, okay, and did tend to fade. Which is very similar to kind of what we had back in the vegetable juice powder days when we were fermenting okay you get it you'd see it and then it would start you know slowly but surely you know fading away so we got that another thing i found that was real interesting is that the external color was different it was the most uniform color that i mean i have no problems with the uniformity of color but it's a browner color and a little bit of the research I've done, because uh, I'm not an expert in a lot of these things, I have some great people who are trying to give their perspective, but L-Arginine you know, definitely could uh, uh, function as part of the Maillard browning reaction. And so there's some things there that may be going, but we haven't really set up anything to see it, but we hope that we can get to that point as well. So it's very, very uniform, extremely uniform. And if you just have those right quarters together in a package, you don't think anything about it until you put it next to one that's conventionally cured and you go wait a minute now this has got a browner color this has got more of a that pinkish you know red color you know and that's even with smoke applied so uh, uh, i think color is going to be an area that we really need to look at sensory and also probably some gc mass spec work on volatile components and obviously pathogens those are the things. And we were fortunate uh, to receive a USDA grant. Uh, I think we, got, we, we were notified in October of last year. So we're actually starting this week, actually started last week. I'm doing some preliminary runs, but I have people who are great with the color, great with sensory and volatile analysis and pathogens, You know, microbiologists who are going to look at these different areas to see if we can figure out ways to maybe stabilize that color, okay? Or to at least figure out what's going on, uh, primarily internal, but then, you know, we, we definitely will look at external. Do we get anything, do we get any advantages from a uh, sensory perspective? Because I do believe, I have read that L-arginine can be considered a flavor enhancer, okay? So there might be some, some benefits there. The other part we do not know is that, is it generating enough residual nitride to try to you know, stop the uh, formation of spores and, and development of a neurotoxin if we're talking about uh, you know, the clostridiums and all. And, uh, but it's kind of designed in this study you know, to be able to look at those things. But the other part of it is, is that we don't quite understand everything that that uh, nitric oxide synthase system is doing. So the first part that we're doing is actually looking at, at identifying through amino acid analysis and enzyme activity. Okay, when we get these samples, how much arginine is there? Okay, that, that's number one. Then we're gonna add the arginine to it at whatever levels. We're gonna analyze that, make sure, verify we got this much. Go through our process of heating the product. And then at the end, we'll analyze for citrulline because from what I've read, whatever you generate with citrulline, you're generating the nitric oxide, okay? So if I measure citrulline, I by default, I get an indirect measurement of nitric oxide. And so we'll kind of know a little bit more about what's going on. The other thing is that it's an enzyme. So what impacts enzymes? Temperature, pH, time. In this enzyme system, and again, I'm pulling this from medical research, there's some other cofactors and stuff that influence its ability to uh, convert the arginine to nitric oxide. So I'm kind of looking at that. I've got another PhD student who's going to kind of take a look at some of those cofactors. Right now, what we're doing is trying to figure out what do we take these um, the amino acid analysis because to me, I did do a little implant testing. I went to a regional bacon processor and said, "Hey." I want to see if this works in bacon. You mind if I come over to your plant? I want you to do it exactly like you do it in your plant. I just want you to pull out your curing agent and let us put this in it. And so we did. And what I found when we took these uh, bacon samples back, uh, slice samples, uh, they had a little bit more intense cure color, and we just measured it based on a star value, which was you know indicates the redness, and uh, it was a little bit more red than than what we normally get. And I tracked it back to the fact that through the bacon process, the optimal temperature range, you know, obviously for most enzymes, is what you know it's your physiological temperature. So if you're at ninety eight, yeah, your body temp. If you're at ninety eight point six or ninety eight to one hundred, you're good to go. But what I found out, I took their smokehouse control charts. And what I found out was that it had stayed in that optimal temperature range. And again, I'm going back to medical research. There's a really good paper where they looked at different forms and said, okay, this is what you get over this amount of time. And what I found out was that the bacon had stayed in the optimal temperature range for about 45 minutes. Okay, so that's telling me, okay, our Frankfurters and our test samples, obviously, maybe 10 to at most, maybe 15 minutes, which means there's a shorter time, right, you know, for this enzyme to work to do what it's going to do with respect to generating nitric oxide. So that's what we're doing with this first phase, is really trying to figure out how does that enzyme work in post rigor meat, and what can we do to uh, make it as functional or effective as possible, and see if that can influence the results that we get. So it's all going back to... I thought unless I, I thought I left enzymology when I took my last you know biochemistry class and all of a sudden I'm right in the middle of it again. So God I have to get people, back smarter.
1: Around. <laughs> yeah, I get people smarter than
0: me in this area, but, well, uh, but that's kind of where we're at, you know, right now. And we're actually, I think, doing some more amino acid analysis work uh, today to try to get a sense of what's going on.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, oh gosh, you, you hit on some really great topics there and, and, for for the processors out there, maybe, maybe some of you it, it it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the Frankfurter sausages, a lot of times these are fully cooked items that we're gonna just we're gonna try to get to that end temp quick. Whereas the the bacon that you can argue cooked, not cooked, but it's kind of that mid-range thing where we're it's more of a cold smoke. And we're not really trying to fully cook that. The fully cooking happens in the frying pan ultimately and so we're we're taking it up to that warmer temperature to get the smoke penetration and get those flavors that you want but then we cool it back down and never really fully cook it and 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 that makes a lot of sense that we're we kind of dwelling within that ideal temperature yeah. range for the yeah. for the enzymes
0: and, <laughs> and, and, yeah absolutely right phil and I, and I think the key here is that uh, we're trying to find ways to uh well what we're really trying to do is figure out as much as we can what's going on so that we would be able to to give processors some operating parameters to go by. Very much like they did, uh, you know, when the first celery powders came out and we had to to ferment. I mean, there was all these parameters, hey, do it for this, do it for how long, do these things, and you should get this particular result. So that's kind of the same. I think think we're in the same situation, uh, if you will. Uh, The downside would be, well, if I tell you that hey, you need to keep it at this temperature for 45 minutes. That's an issue for frankfurters, and when I say that, I reduce throughput, which means I can't produce as many. All right, but for bacon or hams or larger, you know, products, maybe that's not an issue. In other words, it may do what it wants to in the normal manufacturing or thermal processing uh, steps that a processor would take. No big deal, it's going to stay there there's just some things here that we don't know. Uh, we did make some pepperoni, uh, the other day, you know, using this, it was kind of a undergraduate research, you know, thing. I had some students who wanted to, wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, again, you throw in another factor. Now you're throwing in, you know, a drop in pH, you know, as well. And again, that temperature is going to stay in that range for a long amount of time. So, uh, you know, every time we think we have something answered, you know, obviously it generates two or three more questions, yeah. but, uh, you know,
1: That's it, research. Yeah,
0: yeah, it definitely <laughs> is. And, and to me, the biggest thing that stops it stops this technology probably from, uh, being brought in, if you will, U S wise is, uh, is the color. And so you may not think that's that big a deal. If we're talking about just Frankfurter I don't know how many people really look at the, you know, internal colors they're looking right. at, but, but I mean, be the I colors. do. But I'm a, I'm yeah. a, I'm a different
1: breed of cat. So, but,
0: but, an, but an Oscar <laughs> Meyer is going to look at that internal color. If yeah. you talk about uh, sliced bone or ham slices, okay. Well, you know, you want to see, you know, something that looks nice. Yeah. So, so that's something that uh, uh, we definitely have to look at because I'm not sure. I don't know what the ratios of the cured meat pigments are. Okay. There's a lot of them. So the question is, you know, well, well, what are we producing with this system? Is it truly, you know, nitrosy or is it more nitrosal myoglobin? You know, wh- what's that, what's that percentage? Because I mean, I'm a believer that not a hundred percent of the myoglobin is going to be that's you know, yeah. I, I mean, there's a percentage, the higher, the better, right? Because yeah. it should keep your stability.
1: That's the pink color. Uh, but yeah,
0: yeah. I just don't, I don't know what the ratio uh, is at this point. So uh, that to me is, is a big one. And a lot of other questions, like I said before, how does it taste? You know, is it as uh, effective uh, with pathogen uh, prevention slash reduction, shelf life, uh, all of those things. But, uh, you know, like I said, if it's something that if it's something that the industry slash consumers would wanna have, something that truly can be cured, have the flavors and everything else, but yet no nitride in it, okay, added to it, okay, added to it. I'm still generating nit- you know, residual nitride, but I will say so far the levels of residual nitride that we're generating are lower, okay, compared to the conventional. Turing methods across the board for what we've done, uh, probably I want to say ten percent, maybe as high as twenty percent lower. Okay, so one of the things I want to look at at some point will be nitrosamine formation, uh, just to see uh, you know how that might work. And uh, I'm not there yet, but uh, there, there's some people who have a, like a Raman uh, spectrophotometer that is not invasive, and they can you know scan and detect. Uh, nitrosamine formation. And it would be something I think at least uh, another piece of information in case somebody asks the question. Well, okay, yeah, there it is. But uh, yeah, those are the challenges, uh, you know, that we have because we just don't have, uh, we don't have the answers yet. But I do think we kind of have a, that baseline um, looking at just residual of what's coming out. I think it's good. Now we're trying to just manipulate that enzyme system to see if we can get it to be as functional as we possibly can. And if we can and really can generate, let's just say more of the uh, the, uh, stable cured meat pigment, then that's a positive, you know, if if we can do that and still keep the residual nitrite levels. I don't wanna say this, enough for color, enough for the antimicrobial, but not so much that maybe there's less of a chance for nitrosamine formation, though, to be honest with you, uh, I think the industry in general, has already done a great job with this amount of nitrite with this much, you know, uh, sodium aerothrobate. I, I, nobody really seems to see it as an issue because back in the day, uh, I think we used to monitor, the, I think USDA had, uh, uh, had an agency, I don't know exactly if that was FSIS or the, what's it called, the Bureau of Animal Industry or whatever it might have been back in the day that actually had a monitoring program. And that was probably back in the early seventies, I think, you know, you know, when hmm. all this issue about when the question came about. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So uh, I don't know that anybody tests for it now or anything else, but it's always the number one thing that people always talk about when they talk about cured meats. Yeah. You know, so yeah. whether it is or it isn't, they always come back to, is it carcinogenic? It yeah. can do natural some means all that kind of stuff. And so I think it would be good information to have, if nothing else, I just don't want it to be degenerate to more, if you will. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> yeah
1: well, and and one one of my initial questions was: is is this is this technology commercially available? Not quite, is what I'm what I'm hearing. Not quite. We've I've got had, a little bit of had, work to do.
0: I've had a number of uh, meat companies and ingredient companies interested in it. Oh boy! I, I think the key is that it's kind of hard to know what, what you want to get into, what you want to help with. So the interest is there. I think getting the USDA funding uh, is going to help us, which then when we do this, and for those uh, companies who sign NDAs with us and everything, we can share you know, that type of information and everything to see if it's something that uh, that can be commercially viable. Because right now, you're absolutely right. Oh yeah, it's cool, it's this and that. But if it's not commercially viable, well, that's all it is. It never really comes out of my research lab. So we're going to give it a shot and, and see what we can do. But you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's not commercially viable or available at this point in time.
1: Right, right. Well, it sounds like job security to me. <laughs> uh, and and and, and uh, that's that's where I want to kind of land the plane here. Is is uh, kind of bring it back to. You, you, you've mentioned you, you're, you're surrounding yourself with a lot of very smart people, but you're not giving yourself credit, uh, Dr. Osborne. Uh, clearly, clearly you've, you've had a pretty pretty uh, illustrious career at, at, uh, so far. Um, we like to ask our, our guests, um, tell us a little bit about your background and then you in particular have kind of a unique avocation um, that I think the, the listeners would love to hear about
0: but you may have to refresh my memory on what that is. (laughs) Basically, uh, uh, hometown, you know, for the most part of my life is in Northeast Texas uh, around Overton where A&M has a research and experiment station there. And I got started, my father, for as long as I can remember, has been in the meat business. I mean, he's been in it with uh, his father, his uncle, his brother started a firm. And so uh, I remember going into that meat market when there was sawdust on the floor, wooden meat blocks, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of where it started. And then uh, you know, decided to go to, uh, to Texas A&M for my undergraduate. And, and one thing that was interesting on that was that I was an ag education major, but with a specialization in meats processing. So I took a lot of animal science courses and meat science courses. But then what I got to do, I got to go to a place uh, in Waco, it was Texas State uh technological uh institute tsti it was a vocational type of school that trained meat processors so i worked with them for i don't know uh i want to say four or five weeks before i finished up my student teaching uh up in Wells ploy after that obviously i had to go uh, because i was commissioned as a second lieutenant i had to go to fort sill after fort sill i got a call from a friend of mine saying that a high school in northeast texas was looking for an ag science teacher and they had a meat lab at that high school. And so I went on a free weekend and uh, found out that they had a harvest floor, fab room, smokehouse, the whole shooting match at a high school. And that high school happened to be about 25 miles away from my dad's meat plant. And uh, so I said, hey, you know, I was on a reserve commission so I didn't have to go active duty. So that's what I did. Went down there and taught there for about four to five years. And uh, after that, I went to grad school uh, back at Texas A&M, working with uh, Dr. Jimmy Keaton uh, in processing, uh, if you will. And then after that, I went to University of Nebraska-Lincoln and worked with Roger Bandigo, uh for my PhD. Uh, after that, I was hired by Michigan State University uh, to work uh, there. And uh, Al Perrine, um, who's retired uh, from there, was, uh, uh, was the... Uh, I would say the primary reason why I went to uh, to Michigan State. Uh, and all and after that, uh, there was a position opened open up at Texas A&M. Uh, was, that would have been in 2004. And then I came back and started here in 2004. And it's been a little crazy because uh, for about the first five years doing things, building up the program, and then I got caught up uh, in support of uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so I spent almost right at two years, uh, two back-to-back combat tours, if you will, uh, in Iraq. So that would have been somewhere around October, 2009 to about, I wanna say December of 2011. Got back in uh, to a and in January, 2012, restarted, uh, if you will. And then in, I wanna say in 2016, I guess four years later, <laughs> I was asked to be the associate department head uh, for academic programs. And so I did that for about three and a half years and now I'm back. Uh, So I I would have been, been, I guess in January of 2020, back doing my faculty thing. And then of course, uh, COVID, you know, was reared up its head. I actually was with a friend of mine from South Africa. We were both in Kabul, Afghanistan, doing some USAID training for meat inspectors in the new food safety law that Afghanistan had just passed. And so what we were trying to do, when we were looking at each other said, man, all I know is when they start shutting down the airports, because they were talking about all this, we just needed to get out of Kabul and get to Dubai. Because if we at least get to Dubai and the airline shut down, well, it's Dubai. He had to go straight to Johannesburg. I had to go to Heathrow and then to the U.S. All we want to make sure is that we didn't get stuck there. That we at least got out of there. So, uh, so we did that. And I will tell you, uh, you know, from that point in time, you know, we came back and still working on the research uh, to try to get that final patent filed. And so, that's what I do. I mean, it, I've got a, a, a 45, 45, 10 uh, research, teaching, uh, and service. I, I do some workshops. I, you know, at the time I was traveling. Uh, quite a bit, uh, helping out meat plants or going to conferences or what have you. So uh, really, uh, I've got three great graduate students. I'm looking to get two or three more in the fall to really build up this team so we can start doing a lot of this, a uh, lot more research on all of this. So I'm going to stop it with that and say, I'm not quite sure if I want to ask you, what is this other thing that you said <laughs> that you know of that, you, that I supposedly you've already
1: do. you've already mentioned it and that and that was your military service oh, okay and, All and, right. and, All of, right. and of course we we appreciate that and are, are you still uh involved in that or full-time full-time i teacher wish now? i
0: wish i were but uh, i had to retire after 30 years uh, when i came out of my last tour in iraq uh it would have been uh january 31 of 2012 that um retired from the military gotcha you know and like I said, it was a. It never was 100 percent active duty. That was a mix right. of of reserve at active duty.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, it's clearly um, has has um, uh, molded you to continue to be quite the exceptional leader. Building this this current team of yeah. of researchers, and I can't wait to hear how this all turns out. Um, hopefully, uh, to we get a chance to to visit again in yeah. the future. Well, I appreciate.
0: Let Let me say this. You talked about other. Smart people. Well, I will say that Dr. Ram Ramanathan, okay, Oklahoma State's part of my team. I've got Chris Kurth and Rhonda Miller, part of the Texas A&M team working with me on that. I got Dr. Sapna Das, A&M, who's on the micro side of things. So all I can say is that, yeah. Guess what? Four to one. Four smart people to one nuts. That's the ratio. That's the ratio that I have to work with, and I'd <laughs> you, love to have five to one. To be honest with you,
1: you absolutely have some power hitters right there. But I, you, give yourself a little credit. You're the you're the spoke in the wheel right now, and so um, let's 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 keep turning that wheel, and let's get this absolutely. thing commercially available. Because, oh yeah. my goodness, how exciting would this be for the processors?
0: I think so. I, I think so, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to visit with you uh, yeah. on this and everything. Just give that opportunity to uh, to talk about it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And uh, you know what, let's catch up uh, soon, hopefully in person.
0: Sounds good. Thanks, Phil. Very good. Take care.